Hey, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pokolsky. You guys know that I've become an absolute fanatic about the benefits of breathing. If you haven't heard me talk about this, I suggest you listen up, give me your full attention, because breathing may be the very thing that changes your life, it changes your performance, it changes your mindset, your ability to focus. The list of benefits is long. Now, some people tend to oversimplify breathing. It's, it is in its essence, very, very simple. But the opportunities that lie within a breath practice are vast and innumerable. And certain people are focusing on one type of breath. And that's great. But I want you all to acknowledge that there's many different sequences and cadences and formats and approaches to breathing that can all elicit different benefits and responses in your body. Today's podcast is the Breathing Deep Dive with breathing guru, Brian McKenzie. This guy is an absolute whiz when it comes to understanding not only breathing, but high-level human performance, how your breathing is impacting your ability to access high-level cognitive function, high-level physical performance, whether you're trying to do the highest-level aerobic exercise like triathlons and marathons and super marathons and ultra marathons, or you're trying to do things that are super highly power-oriented like powerlifting and strongman and bodybuilding, whatever it is, breathing is the next frontier of performance optimization. Mark my words, you will be doing this stuff over the next two and three and four years if you're actually wanting to optimize performance everyone will be doing this. Now, there's three aspects of breathing, right? There's the biomechanics. It's how we breathe. It's moving with our diaphragm, breathing through our nose, deeply into our diaphragm, horizontally. Brian talks about that. Then there's going to be the biochemistry, looking at the oxygen and the carbon dioxide ratios. Most people think you want more oxygen. Brian's going to tell you why that's not correct. And then there's the cadence, how deeply, how slowly, how quickly are we breathing? It's going to impact a lot of things physiologically. So Brian in today's episode really focuses on carbon dioxide and why carbon dioxide is the most important thing to be paying attention to and how to manipulate it to get its full benefit. He also talks a little bit about the biomechanics. Where should you be breathing? How to breathe optimally to optimize performance. This is an awesome podcast. Brian is an absolute wealth of information. I'm so grateful for his time. I know you guys are going to absolutely love this podcast. And when you do, don't just tell me. Tell all your friends about it and get everybody onto this breathing practice. Go check out his app, uh, which Brian tells you about in the podcast. Check out his website, powerspeedendurance.com. Brian's also got a book with our great friend, Dr. Andy Galpin, called Unplugged. I highly suggest everybody go over to Amazon, pick that book up now. I have it myself, and I love it. Um, you guys are going to love this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by fresh pressed. You guys know I'm an olive oil fanatic. I reached out to these guys to get them to hook you up with a bottle of olive oil for $1. That's right. It's a $40 bottle. I think it's $39. And they're going to give it to you for a buck, which is awesome. You can pick it up at the URL getfresh35, G-E-T, F-R-E-S-H-3-5, the number 3-5. Get Fresh 35. You can get your amazing olive oil. Guys, I give you my word. This olive oil will be by far the best you've ever had. It's fresh pressed within your – believe it's coming to your house within six weeks of pressing, obviously depending when you get it. So when he first ships them out, which is three times a year, and you're on that mailing list, it's going to be – at your door within six weeks of pressing, which is phenomenal because most things you see in the grocery store are, you know, 
old and have been sitting there for months, if not years, and all of the nutritional benefit is completely removed. So what you guys are looking for is really deep green colors and flavors that are just unbelievable. If you've ever never tried fresh pressed olive oil, you won't believe how completely different it is from what you're used to experiencing in a restaurant or a grocery. Uh, this stuff is just next level, guys. I can't give it my, I can't get it any higher rating than this. And I'm trying to get the owner on the podcast so we can talk about how awesome uh, his amazing olive oil is and how to search it out for ourselves. So get Fresh 35, head over there, pick up an olive oil for a buck, and thank me later. Appreciate you guys. Have an amazing day. Enjoy the podcast with Brian McKenzie. So you're good friends with Andy Galpin. You guys wrote a book together. We did. We did. Unplugged. I saw the future in Andy Galpin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, uh, Andy and I connected a number of years ago and he had some, I wouldn't say disdain, but I rubbed him wrong because of things I was uh, kind of putting out there. And he was very interested to see if all that was panning out. And so I offered to bring him in into one of my facilities at the time and he came over and showed him some things and said that I had been talking about at the time. And he just was, he lit up like the 4th of July and was like, we got to fucking, we got to really study this stuff now. So give me some examples of what you're talking about. That's a really compelling, uh, <laughs> you know, messages dropped there. What was it uh, well, that he was questioning and what was it that you showed him? The key, well, it was right when we were originally getting into, it wasn't originally, but I had been into the breath work a few years at that point And we had seen a lot of stuff in relation to lowering blood oxygen levels. And so I've studied altitude for some time. I've had altitude simulators, all that stuff, all that junk. I play with it. I've been playing with it. But what we understood in the medical world was, you know, hey, anything under 55%, you're basically brain dead. And so, you know, we just shutting down. I was like, yeah, I don't know that that's totally true. And he, he was like, what do you mean that's not totally true? <laughs> Like, this is basically what we understand and what people right. do, you know, and I was like, well, anytime you want to come in, I can show you. And so we brought him in and did a little session and we, we did some, uh, rapid, some, you know, hyperventilation technique stuff, which we kind of renamed this stuff, superventilation. Cause if you're doing it with intent, you're sure. doing it for a very different reason than a, than a chronic problem. And so, and there's many techniques around it. Wim Hof being yeah. the most famous at this point. Um, but you know, I did some stuff with him and then we had him hold his breath. And in the free diving world, they talk about hyperventilation prior to diving to not really do that because it actually, it brings your time to blackout closer right. than if you actually don't. And so that, that also means you drop oxygen concentration levels pretty True. quickly. So right. through the hyperventilation, we played with it. And then I had him on a pulse oximeter and I tapped him on the shoulder as he had his eyes closed and had him look at his pulse oximeter. I think he was at 47%. Really? Just literally threw, threw the thing off and was like, what the fuck? You're going to kill me. <laughs> and it, no, he was like, what do you, wait, what? like we've been telling me, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, it's, this is you, you know, right now, like, you know, these pulse oximeters aren't the most accurate things, right. but, and then I showed him me and I can get it down to the 30%. And it's not that this is something I do. On the regular, right. I do not because I do think that there is damage that can be caused there. And so anybody listening to this, don't go and try and start lowering those blood oxygen levels to critical states. <laughs> um, brain cells will die. So now you're doing this through superventilation and then extended breath holds. Is that correct? Yeah, but we can do this through non-superventilation practices as well. Really? 
Yeah, yeah, you can bring your oxygen concentrations levels down down. Just well. with elevation or oxygen deprivation, how? Just hypoxic work. You just have to get really good at tolerating carbon dioxide and understanding how you deal with. What's your bolt score? If if you can get it to thirty percent, what's your bolt score? I don't even. I don't. Have you tested it? I'm probably it. off the charts. I'm not a big fan of the bolt score because it's so subjective. Okay. We use a yeah. CO2 tolerance score, sure, which is a max exhale test. So that's prolonging, and that's what the free diving world is used for. You know, just forever. The reason I keep going back to them, and I'll go back to yoga as well, is the depth of knowledge that's actually there versus the subjectiveness of a lot of the things that are kind of popping up now. And it's not that the bolt score is bad because it's not. I think McCune's done a hell of a job, but the Buteco method I studied and looked at and have been through a bunch of that stuff as well. You know, and Leo, there's a guy out of Ireland, Leo Ryan, who really was my introduction to that stuff, but. The max exhale test is a three-part test that we've seen where it literally challenges mechanics, challenges the physiology of CO2 tolerance, but it also challenges the brain and where we start to see panic and a lot of other things and behavioral change start to occur. Um, and this has a massive influence. Talk about this CO2 or this max uh, exhalation test. Is it a forceful exhalation? Is it just a, pro a prolonged one as slow as you can prolonged make it? Prolonged out your nose as long as you possibly can without pausing, swallowing, stopping, or taking any, any air at all. It's just a long, long, slow, slow trickle. Done over time repetitively or just once? So like, is it like- Just one. Just one. So how many seconds are you getting on that? When I started this test, when I first did this, and I had been using breathing for quite some time at that point, I was at about 40 seconds, which if my memory serves correct, I was probably around a 40-second bolt test at that point too, 45, 50 seconds. Um, but So is that from inhalation or from complete exhalation already? Like are you taking a huge breath in and letting it out slowly? or what? You take a full breath in. So it's you, you have to be calm. You want to be calm for a couple minutes. Spend some time just being calm, seated or laying down, and then it's four breaths. And off the top of the fourth breath, you hit the timer and you start to trickle out the air as slow as you possibly can. And that is going to give us an accurate assessment as to where you're actually at within dealing with carbon dioxide in a global sense at that moment. Now, that changes throughout the day and this is where a lot of the ideas around training can play in but back to your question i went from about 40 seconds to i can be upwards of two minutes at this point wow so yeah which is a very long time and the only people i know doing longer than that are actually professional or high level waterman freedivers who are actually invested specifically into high high levels you know of this stuff I'm not trying to necessarily push limits like they are in breath holding capacity. I'm more or less trying to find out where I can actually fit this into the current paradigm of somebody who's actually not investing in specificity, right? I'm, I'm like a, you know, like, hey, I work out, I go to jujitsu, you know, I do a bunch of different stuff. I prefer not to specialize in, in being a free diver. What type of benefits would someone experience from this CO2 tolerance? Cool. Well, you know, it's a loaded question, but I know this is how I get people to buy into this stuff, right? Because I'm a huge believer and I yeah. want you to, uh, being the yeah. expert, to tell me yeah. why. Yeah. Anything and everything you're actually trying to achieve is related more than likely to CO2 tolerance, whether that be on a physical level. I don't, you know, so if you're a bodybuilder, the idea is, is that, you know, 
you want to put on more muscle and look more lean, right? Like, or you want to be more lean. Well, oxygen provides a huge factor in that, right? And then from a health standpoint, talking about the brain, like, hey, do you want to feel calmer? Do you want to sleep better? Do you want to not be as reactive? Do you want to have healthier relationships? This all plays a role in how you handle CO2. We've found that there's direct relationship between low, low CO2 tolerance and reactivity, anxiety, you know, and people with pretty off, you know, they're pretty off with inside the spectrum of reactivity, right? So sure, um, like high sympathetic arousal kind of got, stuff. Yeah, very high sympathetic yeah. arousal, like people who have some serious stuff going on. You know, from a mechanical standpoint, movement standpoint, you want to move better. Yoga is the oldest, you know, foundational breathwork practice that's ever existed. It's also the oldest movement practice that's existed. They figured this shit out a long time ago and knew that if they actually controlled breathing through positional work, that you were actually maximizing how the body handles oxygen. And this is where CO2 plays its role is that CO2, like, you know, so the Buteco method popularizes through Patrick McEwen with understanding carbon dioxide's relationship to this, but this is something every medical practitioner or anybody in exercise science actually got a little bit of a dosing of, which was the Bohr effect and how carbon dioxide plays a role in how oxygen is actually dispersed throughout the system. And so if I'm an overbreather or I have a poor CO2 tolerance, my breath centers are set up in my brainstem and those are reactionary first respondent to whether I'm dealing with a lot of carbon dioxide or I'm overloaded cognitively, stressed out, doesn't matter what type of stress, panic, maybe too much work, maybe too much emotional with life. This then lowers your ability to tolerate that. So your respiration rate increases. So that higher respiration rate blows off more carbon dioxide. And so when I blow off more carbon dioxide, I become more alkaline and therefore I'm not actually buffering off or I'm not actually using the oxygen in an efficient manner. Well, that's what Patrick talks about a lot, right? Within the um, oxygen advantage, talking about that CO2 is actually the trigger for hemoglobin to off-gas oxygen into the tissues. And people don't understand that, right? Everyone's trying to get all this extra oxygen, right? When they should be trying to accumulate CO2. So how do you directly implement that into an athletic endeavor? So if you're looking at yourself trying to improve your ability to do jujitsu or run or do you know pool work or, or whatever you're doing, how exactly are you implementing that? Are you implementing it, you know, before the event, during the event, you know, intermittently? What's the best way to you know, optimize this opportunity we have with increasing your CO2? Is it just like, hey, I want to get my CO2 kind of as low as I possibly can tolerate all the time? Or is it, you know, I want to do it intermittently throughout the event? All of the above. But typically we start with, hey, other than a swimmer, let's start with some nasal breathing. Like, let's just shut your mouth for the time being and see how fit you actually are, because this is where our litmus test is on understanding fitness and where your actual aerobic, not necessarily capacity, but efficiency sits. And so when we have a lot of these athletes just shut their mouths, they don't like it because they've got to take about 10 steps backwards in trying to understand how fit they are. So A getting people to understand that, but B, it's like, hey, how can we optimize you prior to this and get your system, your nervous system actually prepared for training or whatever it is you're going to get into? And that's where, you know, pre-work comes into. 
you know, you can have a breath practice prior to getting yourself kind of ramped and focused, kind of think of a lion right before it like, you know, gets ready to attack something or an animal that, you know, is about to hunt something. They're actually not only visually doing things, but they're actually, their breath is doing things as well. And they're doing this in eight. Mm-hmm. And we'd actually be doing this if we were out in the wild still too, you know, to a large degree. Yeah, is there anything that should be done through mouth breathing? Like, is there ever a time in yeah. any endeavor, any event oh, yeah. where you should switch to mouth breathing? Oh, yeah. It's not a lost thing. It is a real thing. And it should happen. You know, at least we think about 80% of training should be nasal breathing. The other 20% should probably be pretty high intensity enough to elicit a response for mouth breathing. Or if I'm in competition, I should be eliciting that response as well because it can come with some advantages. The disadvantage to that is that we're actually requiring more carbohydrate use for it right? So I'm becoming more anaerobic at that point as a result of these, my mouth needing to open because, you know, my mouth needing to open actually means that there's more carbon dioxide in the system, which means I'm probably less aerobic, which means I need to buffer a lot of those, you know, hydrogen ions, et cetera, because of the anaerobic processes that are going on. What's your resting heart rate? Somewhere. Is not something you focus on. Is it something that would typically go down because of your tolerance to CO2? Yes, it will. The big thing we see, especially with people heart rate variability stuff, is where their uh, their heart rate variability scores increase, right? Resting heart rate lowers, deeper sleep, REM cycle sleep increases. Mm-hmm. How about your resonant respiration rate? Are you How many times a minute are you uh, breathing? I'm in the vicinity of six. When I'm yeah. like normal. When So that's like at sleep, you'd, you'd come in around six? Uh, sleep, probably between, I'd say four and six minutes. So to me, that's a superpower, right? Like if you can get to that, that's the ideal state in my eyes for any pro athlete. Yes. And training that to get through that is building CO2 tolerance in your eyes. Is that the first and most important step? Yes, but doing it... Like the things that I use now aren't necessarily what I would be giving somebody who's just starting. You know, I look back towards history and it's like, what were they doing in yoga 5,000 years ago? And it's really basic breath practice stuff and cadence work and understanding how to control one's breathing, getting access to a diaphragm, understanding position, understanding movement. These are foundational things. And then it becomes, hey, you know, Let's do some breath hold stuff on some table work and, you know, like specifically holding for times and building really strongly building that. Although breath control itself will do that, you know, it's uh, the nasal breathing itself is going to start to lower that respiration rate, you know, for a lot of people. I mean, it changed my sleep in four weeks. You know, you just sticking to breathing through my nose and all training I did for four weeks, that changed how I slept for, that was five, four or five years ago now. Well, you already brought up the question that I wanted to dig into, but you answered it perfectly is I wanted to get into this reality of nasal breathing and improved CO2 tolerance being directly correlated to burning more fat as fuel, staying in the aerobic system longer, which is obviously very appealing to most people in this, well, in the the whole world, probably. Yeah. I would guess if you care about your health. (laughs) Yeah. So just this idea of as soon as we know we have to breathe through our mouth, now we're in an oxygen deficit and now our body's going to switch over into a glycolytic system because it can't be in the aerobic system. Yeah. And the big problem is, is that people, especially in our world, think of that as like, well, I'm not working hard enough to be anaerobic. 
Well, you know, it just so happens that you don't need to be working to actually make yourself use your anaerobic systems. You can literally just offload more carbon dioxide by breathing or talking like we're doing right now, and you'll inevitably end up dipping over. You have to. That's why we use metabolic carts that measure respiration is because that's our way for understanding how we actually are burning things. And so if I'm actually using the one thing responsible for governing how much carbon dioxide comes out, right? This thing doesn't. So my mouth is not. My mouth is an offloading tool. And the irony in this is that I'm actually absorbing just as much, if not better, through my nose when I inhale versus my mouth because it's all cleaned. The immune system gets a response from it. It's also humidified. It's circulated in a different way. So the air going in is actually purified to a large degree through my nose versus my mouth, even though I can get it in quicker through my mouth. But it's the exhale that becomes that important process and it's the regulator of carbon dioxide. And so you have your own personal governing machine of that. It's like your own fingerprint. And so understanding that just because so-and-so has a massive VO2 max and I may not, that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't be efficient or just as efficient or even more efficient than that person at utilizing oxygen. How much are you playing with the energy systems thought when you're training? So I don't know what you're training in now that if there's any aerobic stuff or like, how much are you kind of toying over with going into anaerobic places and how much are you kind of trying to push the aerobic threshold or how much would you suggest an athlete looking to optimize their energetic pathways pay attention to those things and you know guess from the question of like how much time should i be spending anaerobic how much time should i be spending high end aerobic how much time should i be spending low end aerobic if at all that has been the crux of something that we developed called the breathing gears which is what we're really working on right now at least from a scientific perspective is to actually validate energy systems through specific respiration patterns and how those speed up and when we transfer over into mouth breathing, et cetera. But everything I do is really governed around understanding that process and how much time I'm spending in those things. But it's based largely on, and this goes back to just having a standalone breath practice and getting into, you know, deeper meditative states, things like that is where I'm actually at based on my CO2 tolerance. So I understand basically when I'm warming up, you know, if I can't hold one breath per, you know, five seconds, meaning in an inhale, exhale in five seconds, and I'm working fairly hard at a specific warm up thing that I'm doing, that I'm off. My CO2 tolerance is off and I need to be paying attention to that. And I will probably need to back off or change the idea of what it is I'm doing with that training. Now, if I'm putting out way more work and I'm able to keep that breath pattern or understand the breath pattern I'm trying to hold, I know I can actually push harder and tap into more. And so things will change on a whim for me very quickly. So you're literally using your breath to determine, one, your internal physiological state and two, how to adjust your training accordingly. 100% every day. Like that's what I wake up and I do. Like I know in the morning what's going on anyway. Like I wake up and I go through a breath practice regardless of what it is I'm doing. And I know exactly where I'm at and what, how much I can actually push. So I go to jujitsu twice a week right now. And so if I go to jujitsu on that day and I wake up and my window is a little bit smaller, I definitely do not push as hard when I roll. 
Like I will back up because I know, you know, especially in a fighting scenario that you're going to push hard. It's just I'll tap earlier or I just won't work as hard. And I definitely will keep my mouth shut, um, you know, in those types of situations. So my thought is this, you know, working with a lot of pro athletes, we have people who say, hey, I've got a game today at seven o'clock. Oh, yeah. What are my interventions as far as like I wake up in the morning and I see my HRVs in the tank. I see my CO2 tolerances in the toilet. What are my interventions where I can make the greatest amount of change right now? Yes. Breath work. Yeah. Breath work. So here's the thing, and this is part of the work. So I'm going to add into here uh, work being done by Dr. Andrew Huberman, who I've spent a lot of time with. I love him, with. man. Huge fan of him. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good dude and he's doing some phenomenal work. And I think he's about to just like crack some stuff open that, that's necessary. But we've got two ways of actually controlling our autonomic arousal, right? Like, so our autonomic, meaning sympathetic or parasympathetic, yeah. you can tap into that. And that is through the visual system or your breathing. We don't have any other means of doing that, literally voluntarily, right? So if my HRV is in the tank or I wake up and I'm an athlete that's got a got something going on, I need to actually, or I don't need to, I can choose to <laughs> elicit some specific responses in order to optimize that. I, we've been screwing around with optimizing HRV scores for quite some time at this point to where if I've got an HRV score that's in the tank, I can change that pretty rapidly and buy some time. And we can do that through some breathing techniques. And then we can also do that by, you know, getting somebody outside or in a specific place, you know, think nature, like how many people freak out looking at a sunset right. or going for a hike? Not many, unless a bear shows up, right? So, you know, and that's because we're going panoramic. We're going into a peripheral state. So we're yeah. downshifting the person, right? You know, and getting that, Getting people to start to understand that, especially athletes or high performers, you know, because we'll deal with people in the military or, you know, high executive CEOs that are like, I don't have time for that. I'm on a plane three days, four days a week, like flying all over the world and I need to go close deals, whatever. And it's like, well, hey, here's what you can do. And so when you do implement these strategies, we have to understand that if we're actually implementing this, you're going to need to actually spend time after that really coming down and getting that HRV or yourself back to optimal place. Meaning you got to back off at some point, you got to take the parking brake off at some point. And you know, that's the critical point. So are you able to share or willing to share your kind of daily practices now? What does it look like to sustain sure. super high levels of CO2 uh, tolerance? Sure. So I wake up in the morning and you know, right now, so I just got done with some altitude stuff. I'm pretty, we, I should say, the folks that I work with, um, you know, Rob Wilson, guys like, you know, Galpin, et cetera. I've got a group of people, a collective that, you know, I share intimate stuff with about what we're doing just to get an understanding of it. But, you know, like I wake up, I just finished a, um, I'll wake up somewhere between four and five 30 in the morning, just whenever I wake up, I don't have an alarm. I spent about 15 days doing a lot of low O2 training that's with altitude machine and breath work related to that. So, so using like Livo2 or something? I use a device called Altolab. It's a okay. portable unit. Um, and I, I use that for about 15 days and then I come off of that. And then what I do is I'll do a build block of high CO2 tolerance building. So what I do is I start, so we've got an app out called the State Breathing App. Mm -hmm. And um, I will typically do the feel alert protocol in the morning. First thing in the morning, regardless if I do the high altitude stuff or not, 
and then I will go into the other stuff. And so the high CO2 tolerance build stuff will come in after that. And so I will do something that is hypoxic. Can you walk us through the state um, breathing, just so the listeners have an idea of what, you get, what you're talking about? Yeah. So the state breathing app was developed in conjunction with the work that I did with Dr. Eric Huberman a few years ago. Yep. We identified, I was running around kind of giving people personal breath protocols because I started recognizing fairly early on that not everybody responds the same way to the same breathing protocols. So if everybody's doing box breathing and I had a group of 10 people, I guarantee I know factually based on what I've seen that not everybody's responding to that protocol the exact same way based on CO2 tolerance and based on the fact that I know emotionally not everybody deals with shit the same way. Our emotional centers are connected to basically how we react. Right. And so all of that stuff interplays with in the reaction in the brainstem with how my breathing's first to respond to all of this stuff. So we picked up on developing protocols based off of the Harvard emotional reactivity test. We created an algorithm with that. And then we coupled that with a CO2 tolerance test. So we got the psycho metabolic reactivity of things. And so we fingerprint people on the app for specific protocols. So your app, if you're using it is very different than my app and it evolves with you. So it's intuitive, right? So it evolves with you based on how you feel you've responded to it. So if I had a poor CO2 tolerance and the protocols were too hard, I'd say it was too hard and then it self adjusts, right? Or if it was too easy, it self adjusts up. And that's when your CO2 tolerance is starting to build, right? So there's four exercises in that one for feel alert, one for being present, which is something you do throughout the day, one for feeling calm, which is a big one, especially for athletes post training or post competition or anybody who, you know, has a stressful day. (laughs) Then there's fall asleep, which is the big one. This is the one that literally is probably the one that creates the biggest impact, although it takes a little bit more time and it's not as sexy, which is the fall asleep one. So I will always do the feel alert at least. Um, and then if I remember, I'll do the fall asleep one at night, but I also do dual breath work sessions. So one in the morning, one in the evening. And then, so I do a high CO2 tolerance build app now where I'm, I'll do the feel alert in the morning and then I go into table work where I'm lowering my time of breathing. I have intervals set up that are set up to they drop by 15 seconds of how much time I get to breathe. Then I have a hypoxic set where I'm holding my breath in between. 15 seconds, drop by 15 seconds per, uh, I'm not sure what. Each interval. Gotcha. So, so you're trying to get this many number of breaths. Think of recovery, yeah. yeah. So think two minutes and 30 seconds is where I start. And I'll breathe one breath every, I give myself one breath every 10 to 12 seconds. Okay. I can't go any lower than 10 seconds. And then I'll do that for about two minutes and 30 seconds. And then I'll hold my breath for a specific number. Then I'll go two minutes, 15 seconds, hold. Then I'll go two minutes, then hold. Then I'll go 145, then hold. Got See? It. But the trick here is, is that, you know, it's really the ability to control the breathing between and not oversaturate and get rid of too much CO2, which is typically what you're going to want to do after a breath hold. But these aren't max breath holds, right? These are things that we're doing that are sub max, but we're lowering things. And so I'll do, that's a high CO2 tolerance building exercise. And that takes about 20 minutes or so. So that's about 30 or 40 minutes worth of breath work that I'll start with in the morning. That's kind of a go-to and it's just, that's deep meditation for me anyway. 
you know, and I've got it down to where I know what the breaths are versus looking at a, a clock at this point, you know, and I know what the feeling is when <laughs> I actually, where my CO2 tolerance is based on where I'm at. So I know when to hold, let, let go. And then from there, it's like, hey, what am I doing today? If I don't have class or something like that, then I'm like, okay, am I lifting today? Do I feel like I need to lift? You know, I do like to lift probably three times a week, in some sort of strength conditioning. So I work on fitting that in or, and I also like to ride. So I'm either on my bike, outside, if, it, if it's raining, I'm inside, I'm on the trainer and I'm doing specific work. And depending on how my body feels and how beat up I am, where I'm at, I know exactly what work I'm, I should be doing. Very cool. So uh, you brought up in there breathing mechanics. And I think to kind of walk our listeners through that a little bit would be very helpful because you know, it's not just about the time, right? There has to be some consideration of the mechanics. Do you, are you able to teach in, you know, verbally rather than physically being there with somebody, what it should look and feel like to actually breathe mechanically correct? Yeah, largely, yes. Yeah, it's so getting people to lay down is usually the easiest, right? On your back? Yeah, because okay. most people are not open enough or mobile enough to actually even sit cross-legged and not compensate in some fashion sure. um, myself was included in this for quite some time but laying down really just laying down your knees bent and then you know you want to just slight glute activation and drawing the belly button down and in and then we are inhaling through the nose as big as we can and if we just keep our hands around the lower ribs so if you put your hands around your upper waist yep. yeah so You've got a blank spot between your hip bones and your ribs. Yep. Just above that blank spot is your lower ribs. And that's where you want to grab onto when you're on the ground. And it's just holding that. And the idea is, is to expand your hands out and not let any compensation happen. So in order to- Now, why am I seeing one side coming up more than the other for me? Yeah. My, is, that, is that a common thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're all asymptomatic to some degree. Right. Yep. And so that's the beginning of it is it's like, Hey, all right, why, why am I feeling one side coming up more than the other? And it's like, well, let's play with that and let's see where that goes. And, you know, so this is kind of the beginning of what can I do with my breath practice? Well, my breath practice can have me actually just following rhythms while laying there. And this is a starting point, like feeling how I'm breathing and how that diaphragm is actually expanding my rib cage horizontally, right? My shoulders shouldn't have to lift. And you actually want to see those shoulders kind of come down, like not too forcefully, but you want to engage those lats. It's just like deadlifting. You know, when you see somebody that doesn't deadlift, right, their shoulders come yeah. forward versus back and down. So we know those lats are out of it, you know? And so keeping those lats engaged, the chin kind of tucked onto the ground, not being stiff, but just allowing that diaphragm to expand. And most people are going to feel like they're pretty limited in their breathing, but they're retraining something that is the most powerful muscle we've got. Yeah. Metaphorically, right? This is the reason why your spine needs to be organized is so that your diaphragm actually works and you're not doing what's called blood stealing, you know? And so when the diaphragm doesn't work optimally, more blood is shunted towards that area. So it's stealing right. from the muscles that you're actually 
trying to move with, whether you're squatting, pressing, running, right? So the muscle, so now you've got lack of blood flow to those areas because you're, you've compromised the position. So it's a good starting breath rate for somebody just like trying to get to that resonant six breaths a minute. So five in, five out kind of thing, paying attention to this mechanical um, breathing in horizontally. Yes. I would advise in the app, there's a free version yeah, yeah. of the app for yep. people like that, that'll fingerprint them what their CO2 tolerance is. So it literally will be like, Hey, where's the reality of this? You know, a lot of us are stressed out, man. And we don't understand that, you know, that stress comes with, you know, breathing patterns that, you know, we may not totally understand. And those breathing patterns can change really quickly and your health can change rapidly as a result of optimizing the oxygen because you're in a stress state. So you're actually not utilizing the oxygen as well as you could. And everything in that body works based off of aerobic metabolism in an efficient way. Yeah, you brought up um, meditation and how these things kind of integrate. So you're able to do this breathing practice and turn it into this meditation practice at the same time. Can you tell us about that and how, like, is it just because you're so unconscious of it now, the breathing is able to take you there because you don't have to be aware of it? To a large degree, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, when I first started this stuff, it was definitely a work. Sure. <laughs> you know, and then um, it gets to a point to where you just become aware of your breathing you know, or lack of breathing and Hey, what's going on if I actually hold my breath here and when do I start to react to things? And I know I'm not going to die right now, but my body's going to act as though I am. And so these are telling points in what behaviors we have and when we decide to react to things and how we react to things. And so that build on CO2 tolerance is critical. And, and when I say that, I mean like, look, if I hold my breath for three minutes, I'm not in jeopardy of dying, but my body's going to convince me, my brain is going to try and convince me of something very different than that. Like it's going to say, hey, Brian, you need to breathe really badly right now. You are in toxic danger. And the fact is, is I'm not really in that much of toxic danger. I just have a low CO2 tolerance or a low threshold to stress. Because the key thing with stress at this point that we're seeing is that CO2 tolerance is involved, mm -hmm. major. And so my reactiveness to that becomes a player. And so when I'm in my breath practice, regardless of what that is, even just breath control, right? Like, so if I'm slowly inhaling, holding, slowly exhaling, holding, or whatever pattern I choose, I find where those limitations really are and I try and hold and stay in those limitations or those numbers so that I can actually see how I'm starting to respond to things. This in turn allows me to then explore where I'm at within myself and hey, maybe it's you know how I'm reacting on some interview or how I'm reacting with a business partner or a friend or whatever and these are all the same thing in how I'm reacting. There is no difference. And so behaviorally, what we do is it's like, <gasps> I needed air so much. I need to get more air. And it's like, no, that's not what the problem is. The problem is the reactiveness and everything that's going towards that. And so it's really learning, learning more about that. Yeah. Do you have a objective set point for people to 
strive for. So I think the reason a lot of people don't start this, at least my uh, subjective experience for what people tell me, is they don't have a defined end result. A defined like, hey, once I reach this, I'll know I'll you know be healthy or I'll be stress-free or because it's so subjective. So in the app, do you guys have like you know, targets, like, hey, hit this target. And then once you hit that, then then opens the next target. Because I think that would be a very useful way to get people started. Yeah. In the app, we just have, hey, good job, or hey, milestones you've reached. We're working towards a lot of things. We spent a lot of money on the design of this thing and thus, you know, wanted it to be pretty clean. So that said, the idea is to get people to just start to feel themselves what's going on. But Ultimately, what we see, and your listeners can use this for better or for worse, is that really on the CO2 tolerance test, anything we see under 20 seconds, you need a lot of improvement on. There's a lot of reactiveness going on within you, regardless if that's really outward or it's inward. And there can be some big improvements. So increasing that, you should actually feel and see changes that are occurring sure the 20 to 30 seconds range is really kind of your you know um i'd say moderately anxious and then the 30 and you know 30 to 45 seconds is really where we see the average of people who are doing this stuff but the big improvements of what we see are when people are upwards of 60 seconds this is when people really see major changes and what's going on and if this is coupled with and there's a big difference here is if this is coupled with the ability to incorporate more nasal breathing into what it is you're doing when you're training, you will see major changes physiologically going on in the positive, meaning you're probably going to be leaning out or finding that uh, you're a lot calmer, you last longer. Um, I mean, look, one of my the first kids that I hooked on with that was able to grasp this in CrossFit um, was a kid out of Australia who's really, you know, blossomed. And, you know, we had him start nasal breathing a number of years ago and he got on the assault bike and I was just like, just go and tell me how high you can get. Well, we have a test we do and, you know, let me see how high you can get nasal breathing on this test. And he got to about a 148 heart rate and then he had to stop. And then I think it was something like six or eight weeks later, we retested him and he was roughly at a 172 heart rate. And he was like, at 170, I felt like I could just keep going forever. Wow. And I was like, well, more, more than likely you could have gone for quite a long time at a 170 heart rate. That doesn't mean he's totally aerobic, but it did mean like, look, I can, I can function at 96% of max heart rate, nasal only. That does not mean that's optimal though. I could probably optimize myself by opening my mouth at that point. But what is training for? And this is where things like, hey, if I'm at 90% heart rate and I'm forcing myself to nasal breathe, I'm actually forcing my body to deal with the acidic process a lot more, thus eliciting more of an adaptive process after that. Now, competition or something that I'm really trying to win at or do well at, I would not be doing that. Can you talk a little bit about the acid and alkalinity and how breathing and CO2 is impacting that? Because I don't think that's uh, how the the listeners will understand. Yeah. So breathing is the regulator of all chemistry in the body, right? The kidneys play a minor role in it, right? But breathing is largely the regulator of chemistry. And when I say chemistry, I mean your pH, potential hydrogen, right? So how alkaline or how acidic you are. If you want to get acidic, you go work out really hard and, and really just 
mouth breathe as hard as you can, right? Or you just push it to the degree that you have to open your mouth really hard, right? That is what you're becoming more acidic. That's why your, your mouth is actually opening or you're actually using a deep, you know, uncontrolled, out of control breath is because you've become acidic. And so when we, what we can do is if I'm actually sitting there and I'm not working and I mouth breathe, I force hyperventilation to superventilate. I'm actually blowing CO2 off while I'm not working, right? And so when I do that, I'm actually putting more oxygen into the red blood cells, right? And so I'm stuffing more oxygen in, but it's not usable oxygen. So the system is becoming more alkaline. Now I'm switching over to more alkaline. And this can become dangerous if I continue in this fashion for too long by creating too much of an alkaline system, right? And so what we want is really in that like 7.4 range is where we're really optimal. And so breathing is where we really get that change to happen. And so if I actually work with my breathing to make those changes or optimize those changes, I can actually optimize myself and becoming more available to less inflammation or more inflammation if I'm trying to elicit a response. And when I say that, it was going back to the, you know, what we were just talking about, like with my training, if I'm specifically working really hard and limiting how much air I can take in and out, I'm specifically making myself more acidic. I'm specifically trying to create a process that's actually going to need to adapt, right? And so I'll do things like that. Like think of a 30 second max effort. Like we could go breathe however you want with max effort if we're doing multiples of those. But if during the recovery I said you can only nasal breathe, that changes everything very quickly. And you find people really freaking out, <laughs> right? because of that CO2 response and, oh my God, I'm gonna die, but you're not gonna die. It's how your body starts to handle that process. Now, would I do that in all training? No, you know, this is where we start to look at periodization and things and it's like maybe in the beginning phases of this, I am forcing more of a, like a controlled breathing pattern within the very high work rates and then all of a sudden I start to open those channels up as we start to peak and I'm controlling breathing during the work, but not during the recovery. And then we start to see those things really start to open up. And so that can really playing with that pH is the process that we really are trying to harness, which is where the pH has to do with your oxygen and what's going on with the oxygen in your system. Very cool. So, man, it seems like you've got such a great handle on, you know, this breathing piece and the energy piece. What are you most excited about in the future? Because I think when, when someone like yourself, who's obviously a very passionate learner and a passionate athlete, has these amazing tools pretty well under wraps, there's another doorway that you're about to walk through. And I'm very curious as to what that is. I'm specific, like, I've been wrapping my head around, <laughs> interestingly enough, around a lot of the brain stuff yeah. and behavior. Yep. But I really think that the, you know, everything is energy. I think human performance is about energy. And human health is about energy. 
and it's understanding energy. And there's a mismanagement or misunderstanding of energy that's going on, especially today, you know, that we're seeing, you know, with everybody with a lot of the anxiety disorders and all these things that people are, you know, I don't think we're any different. We're any more evolved or less evolved than we were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And I don't think, I think it was much more difficult <laughs> years past and we live in a more convenient and safer world. And that comes with massive responsibility. And that has become a disconnect into our own biology. And so understanding the mind is really where I'm at. And I think the mind is really the intelligence of the entire system. And it's not the brain. It's really how, you know, what's going on with my physiology? Because I've got pain in my leg and that's a sense. And I need to be paying attention to that sense and what's going on, right? And understanding what those feelings are. And I think this is where, you know, a good buddy of mine, Fergus Connolly, who, who actually lives with me right now, he and I have discussed this and he's, you know, brought up a topic of is psychology just misunderstood physiology at this point. And it's not that I'm suggesting that psychology, uh, look, I've worked with a lot of therapists. I've worked with a lot of people to understand not only myself, but to really get into this stuff, to really understand the depths of this stuff. And really people only give a shit when they don't understand how they're feeling. And that feeling is a connection to really mismanaged physiology and things getting crazy. And my response is going off versus you know, like, look, we've got a top-down system where I've created emotional responses to things as a kid that are indicative in how I behave as an adult. And most of us are not willing to really look at that. We're just willing to react to that. And I was one of those people who did that. I didn't do it terribly, but I did it to the degree that I wanted to understand it more so that I could make connections to these things. And this inevitably led me back into human performance and understanding the behaviors I've seen with inside the professional athletics community and the misunderstanding of a lot of things that are going on there. There's an identity crisis. There's an identity and image crisis going on, and that is a problem. And this is not solely athletes. This is the human race where especially we've got this thing called social media that we're trying to portray images on that are separate from the identity of who we actually are in person or what we're doing. For me, breathing has stood at the center of this to understand who I am and what I'm feeling and what's going on, whether I'm moving, whether my physiology is doing something or whether my brain is racing, right? And I'm trying to make connections and I have been able to really understand this whole thing through that breath channel, like because it's the regulator of what's going on inside the system. It's the first respondent to things. And I didn't want to stumble on it like that. It's just what it did. Then going back and looking at it, it's like, look, I'm not bringing up anything new. This is a 5,000 year old historical prophecy that's been yelled in some esoteric language that a lot of us just weren't listening to. And I'm just painting a different light on it and how I've experienced it and how I'm trying to connect it into human performance. Isn't it amazing though, that I, I'm finding the exact same thing is that there's been so many generations before us that have said the exact same thing, but this human race is so stupid that we just can't learn it. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the importance of like I'm talking about, like, I don't think we've tapped into our biological potential. No, I don't even think we're close. No. Like I was happy as pig and shit for the sub two hour marathon. But the reality of it is, is it's like that was a technological two hour marathon. 
I mean, his physiology is off the hook. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but that is a technological advancement, just like sprinting in the hundred meters right. is a technological advancement. Largely the training ideas and things are changing that much. And so where are we going biologically? And I really am, I think it's important to understand our own biology, but in the context of what you just said, it's like history is very, very important. And I think we need to read more history and to understand it from very different viewpoints and very different things that have occurred. And I mean, look, man, I look in just like how the American West happened. And it's like looking back on that and how people lived and what happened and what they did. I'm able to connect things that I'm talking about in human performance to how those things occurred, what was going on, how people behaved, like what was all these things playing around. And it's like, Go and look at it all and be able to see it for what it is and how it all worked. And history is there for a reason. And it's really telling what we've missed. And I think it's all there. And we're not going to change the human species in one generation. I think that's where the disconnect happens is every generation makes these advancements and then they don't bother to teach their children because their children are off in some box learning conventional schooling methods and it doesn't transition, right? So like, you know, there's no doubt that there's the disconnect generation to generation because everything you're learning, if you could just take that, transmute it into the brain of your children when they're, you know, seven to 10 years old and then allow them to take that information and then exponentially add on it, then we make yes. exponential leaps, right? But it seems like it always seems yeah. to skip a generation. Yeah, man. It's crazy. It's such a crazy thing. But I think this is why, you know, this also leads to empathy in, in a way that we've never seen. That's been my experience is the ability to see things from a different perspective, yeah. you know, somebody doing it. And it's just like, it put myself in their shoes so that I can experience it from what they, how they did. You know, and, and still get my own fresh experience from it. Sure. It's also frustrating when there's people in front of you who you know you can help. And if you're just like, hey, just do this. And yet they're their own worst enemy and they just won't get out of their own way or they don't want to change these type of scenarios. You know, it's so frustrating because it seems like it's so simple. It's certainly not easy, but it's, it's so simple to make physiological changes to your breath and to your mind almost, and to your emotions almost immediately, right? Like 30 days, right? You can make a significant difference, oh, like you said. But most people would just... The brain will change, man. Man, but most people would just look at it and say, oh, I can't. Like, uh, I don't know if it's possible rather than just actually doing the work. Yeah. I've been saying this a lot more lately, but it's, you know, it's just to add on to that is it's so easy. It's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And that's the problem is people don't want to look at themselves and take responsibility for themselves and understanding themselves. And it's like they just want an answer to make it more convenient or easy. And look, I'm just as guilty of that. Like, you know, sure. I, like I fall into that stuff all the time and I have to remind myself, but yeah, I don't even think easy is, is what people are after, right? People are, are after who knows what they're after. But you know, when I tell somebody the three foundations to optimal human health are breathe, walk and meditate. And those are the three things that I say every human must do. And people look at me and think I'm out of my mind. They're looking for some complicated scientific explanation as to what they should be doing to get in shape. And they're like, oh man, that's really the irony of what we're living in right now is so they're always looking for like the the data or where's the proof? I'm like, well, the proof is in the last hundred thousand years of this is what we need to yeah. do. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, although a lot of the people I'm, you know, I run into would prefer to just pay for something to have it done. But uh, sure. Put me on a ventilator to teach me how to breathe. And I guarantee someone's going to say that, right? Like put me on a machine. I can't even tell you, man, how many 
breathing devices have been created since like we really, and it's not just, this is on us. It's the whole movement of this breath craze, you know? And it's like, like breathing is important. It's a part of my life, but like, look, it's not the answer. It's just a tool, but it's something you've got that in any moment you want to just go and take control of and create a gap between the response of what's happening. Your choice. Like all the Frankel, right? Yeah, yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> That's it. Love it, man. We're speaking the same language, man. Great to hear. Are you still teaching courses yourself? I do from time to time. I show up uh, the one-on-one that we teach from time to time. Um, more or less, I get contract work. I'm more involved in. Um, we're probably going to be doing a 102 course uh, in 2020 that I will definitely be teaching with Rob. What will be the difference of that one? That'll be the next level. That a lot of the stuff that I'm getting into and you know, like gears and the thinking, you know, the brain and how it's reacting. And even though we're doing a brief overview on that, we're laying fundamentals down with the 101. A lot of people want that. They want that shock and awe, you know, the big deep dive stuff, but they're not even ready for that, yeah. you know? Um, and so we, we felt that the time has, you know, been, it's been a couple of years with that 101 that's been out and now we're ready to kind of, we've got the info, all the information, but it's just, yeah, bringing out that one on two stuff. If people want to learn more about this and yourself, Brian, where do they find you? Powerspeedendurance.com is where all the stuff, like there's breathing resource. There's a lot of free information on there, including doing a CO2 tolerance test if you want. Yep. And then getting a bunch of different, like I think there's seven or eight different protocols on there that you can play with to see what protocols do what for you. There's the state app. Uh, I'm not on there, but that state app is out there. It's on uh, Android and uh, iOS. And then I've got a website too, uh, ryanmckenzie.com. And then Instagram and Twitter are both out there. Uh, I'm not on Facebook a whole lot. I'm not on Twitter either. Uh, Most of my work is done on Instagram where I'm just trying to offload the writing and thinking that's going on um, and keep you up to date with what information on stuff that we're finding out. Yeah, man. One thing I want to ask you after that, and you can choose to cut this out or not, is I remember it's probably two years ago you had um, an accident, right? Mm, Yeah. Was it? Yeah. A year and a half. Yeah. Want to talk to share about that? I'm very curious how your recovery went because obviously with your access to this knowledge and information, you were doing some stuff that's probably pretty cutting cutting edge. Yeah, uh, it's not a big deal. So a year and a half ago, my sister's about to she's about to show up with her little one. Who uh, that's all right, man. Bring them on. Uh, Kids uh, are always welcome. <laughs> they were ironically at this event. Yeah, I was up at my sister's about 45 minutes north of here, and uh, I was playing tag with my nephews and niece and I was being chased and I ran up a ladder, uh, went up to the top of the ladder, did not see a bar at the top where a kid could typically fit in. Um, and went straight head top my head into it and compressed my spine, um, compressed C three, four disc, um, which pinched my spinal cord fully. And I went lights out from the, from the direct hit, uh, up top, dropped about seven or eight feet, landed on the ground, woke up, I guess a few seconds later, and I was paralyzed completely and woke up and I just kind of was like, oh, shit, <laughs> I can't move. And I assessed what happened pretty quickly, like, I mean, a few seconds. And within that time frame, I just knew to control my breathing. So I didn't exacerbate a lot of the responses. And I mean, that just goes into having a practice as long as I've had at this point and as deep as I've taken it. So I controlled the breathing and then I started thinking, all right, look, this could be a major change in your life right now. You've got a lot of people around you, especially kids, 
to freak out right now or make this any worse. <laughs> like what's best case scenario to, to play this out right now? And, was, and so I just calmly asked my nephew to get my sister and my, they got over, called an ambulance and uh, the paramedic showed up. By the time the paramedic got there, which was about 10 minutes after the accident, I had deep neurogenic pain in my hands. Um, and so I was getting some feeling back um, and I was like, oh, okay, great. Maybe I'll just, you know, lost the use of my legs. It, I got shipped out and it took me out 30, 40 hours and I ended up getting feeling back into my legs, although I still have numbness and I'm, I've got like, you know, if you've ever had icy hot on, that's basically how my legs feel from the calves down to the feet constantly. So the, the, there was lasting damage. I ended up getting uh, surgery done anterior. They went anteriorly um, and gutted out my disc, C3-4, and we basically fused it, right? And so I spent about, I don't know, three months learning kind of how to redo things. The best I could do was really uh, get on a stationary bike because that was safest at the time. I had to learn to rewalk for some time. That took about four weeks to really learn how to walk before I was actually comfortable. It was probably about three months before I was like walking around, doing things, you know, outside and comfortable like that. But I, I just started training my ass off and figuring out exactly how you can deal with a concussion and, you know, a spinal cord injury in the fastest manner. And, you know, I implemented my breath practice to the ump degree, started engaging more back into yoga and started utilizing aerobic training to the fullest, meaning I was literally controlling my breathing patterns within a, you know, high level aerobic efforts on a stationary bike in order to speed up kind of, or just work with how I can accelerate my physiological response to things. And within about a year, I was probably the fittest I've been in about 10, 12 years. How long did it take before you were able to have kind of full function back? Full function came in about three and a half, maybe four weeks. It was in the three, four weeks. Okay. Like, look, it was like, I was not walking normally. And I still have like stuff that like, you know, it's just like if I squat heavy or I do things that they're requiring a ton of my nervous system in order to recruit things, my nervous system just starts to shake yeah. pretty bad. You know, it's still a work in progress, but it's not, it's not my identity, right? right? Like, and this is what I've learned through my process, right? And this is the depth of the things that I've looked at is like, I've been a runner, I've been a coach, I've been these things, I've been this thing, I've been that thing. And these were things that, you know, were separating my image and identity, you know, and who was I really, if I was a runner and I'm not long, no longer running, you know, there's a problem, there's a disconnect there. So it was like, I didn't want to take on the identity of I'm a spinal cord survivor, sure. <laughs> yeah. you know, or, like, it's just not what I wanted to be, but you know, like, look, I've got a lot of friends who actually have had major spinal cord injuries that aren't walking. And these are people who took on that same mentality. So I had opportunity to look at that and be like oh okay yeah this is these people fully function like they're doing their thing yeah. like this is a, a new way of doing things it was just a new game yeah man well that's all i didn't know you at the time but I, I was sending you love and energy because i saw it happen i saw wow. when you posted about it and i've got kids and i'm always trying to be super dad playing stuff like that in the playgrounds i'm like man that could just be anybody so i was definitely sending you a healing energy man and i'm glad to see you back and impacting the world in such a way that you are thank you uh, thanks ben i appreciate that brother I really appreciate the work you're doing too, man. It's awesome. Thanks, man. Listen, man, we're going to connect sometime soon because I'm definitely going to come out to your 102 next year. So I look forward to that.
Yeah, if you're in the Bay Area, make sure, you know, let me know and we can spend some time just going over that stuff at my uh, my little compound. Oh, man, I, I'm planning on making my way out there, I tell you that much. <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. That's a wrap for today. Just a few more words before you head out. I want to thank you very much for being here. I'm truly grateful for your time, for your ear and your attention. I know Brian uh, really enjoyed providing this information for you. If you guys haven't already checked out his information, head over to powerspeedendurance.com. Check out his app called State and pick up his book, Unplugged. It's honestly an honor to have this guy on. He's, he's a wealth of information. He's helping millions of people around the world. Brilliant, brilliant man. I also want to remind you guys to head over to Get Fresh 35 to get your olive oil for a buck. And one final announcement before I go, if you're not already signed up for the Muscle Intelligence newsletter that goes out every single Friday, giving you all the best info that I'm curating from around the world of body, brain, and life optimization. you got to get there. Get in there now. You're going to get amazing hookups as well as awesome insights, info, and updates from yours truly. And if you're lucky, maybe Ashley will jump in there sometime as well and give you updates for the Muscle Maven. Hope you guys have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in the body you love. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.